Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So we're in this series on mission redemption. We are looking at the Holy Week of Christ. It's this last week that leads up to Friday, which is what we believe is the day that uh, he was crucified. And so we've spent a lot of time in the day of Thursday. And the moment of scripture we're going to pick up on right now is verse or chapter 17 and the first about 19 verses. And Jesus, at this point, he stands up, I believe, from a dinner that he was at in what we call the upper room. And now he is walking basically to be handed over to those that will betray him. And so uh, hop in your Bible to uh, John chapter 17. That is where we'll spend the most of our time, but I do want to kind of back up, just to be honest with you, to show you how we got there. I think the importance of knowing how we get to this prayer of Jesus, and that's what we find. I believe it's just a time of him walking and praying in that he has this incredible prayer uh, for not only he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays uh, for you and me. And we're going to stick with where he prayed for his disciples and then, or himself, and then he prayed for his disciples, and then Pastor Ed will be in here next week, and he's going to bring us the part at the end of chapter 17 where Jesus prays for you and I. To be perfectly clear, the passage we are looking at today is a very holy passage. I mean, it is as if today we are standing on holy ground when we open up John chapter 17. It is that crucial of a passage because it's Jesus in prayer with the Father. And just to be clear, it's, it's set apart from the prayer we were taught in Matthew chapter 6. We, we hear it commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. This is not the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. That was a model prayer that God, Jesus, gave to us to pray. This is a literal prayer that Jesus prays to the Father that John recorded for us uh, in, his, in his letter uh, to us. Last week, Daniel, he gave us the big idea of following Christ offers hope in the midst of despair. Following Christ offers hope in the midst of despair. And the theme for today is going to stay true in that last week we looked at this, this joy, this abundant life that we find is, is really found not in the absence of all our troubles, but it's found in the midst of all our troubles. And that theme is going to continue because because God is, or Jesus is going to pray to God, and he's going to make it very clear that he is not praying for us or himself yet to be removed from the trouble, but yet to be protected in the midst of it. And so that is an important differentiation of what Jesus is praying for Uh, in this passage. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we love you. We thank you just for the opportunity to meet together. Father, we pray for those uh, that, Lord, are are displaced right now. We pray for those that are, Lord, uh, 
with issues with pipes and electricity, Lord, those that are maybe watching online right now because they couldn't make it up here. Father, we just pray that you would be with all of us, Lord. We pray that our community would come together. And Father, help those that are, uh, that are known. Father, help those that are our neighbors that we don't yet know. And Father, again, just I pray that you'd open your word today. And Lord, let it be clear uh, in our own hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I meant to share up front, so I heard the funniest post, uh, and I think someone in this room, I think Michelle Pope posted it, is what my wife said, but it said, uh, it said, look at you, Houston, looking all pretty today. Just yesterday, you tried to kill us. And so uh, I, I thought that kind of cracked me up, but that kind of, it kind of puts into perspective of this week, because if you think about it, Jesus has a lot going on right now in his life in this passage we are about to read. In fact, we don't do the passage justice if we don't rewind and take a look that all is going on in his life. This week, a lot of us faced a lot of stress, uh, stress either on your own or, or helping others or just for us, it was, you know, the walk with buckets to the next door neighbor's pool to flush the toilet. You know, it's like the basic needs of life and it just gets stressful. Jesus is at a high moment of stress uh, in his life. And so what I want to do is I want to back up and kind of give you the timeline of everything that has happened. If, if you're familiar with the scripture, then you'll, you'll know a lot of these stories. As you read your Bible, you will begin to hear some of these stories. And, and sometimes we're guilty of separating them out and just looking at them one by one by one, when in reality, a lot of these stories of things that Jesus did and Jesus went through, they all happened within this one week. And so let me kind of give you a timeline. Where we are, we are in what is called the upper room, and Jesus has had a meal and a Passover feast with his closest disciples, the twelve and he is giving them what we have coined a farewell discourse or a upper room discourse. Discourse, just a scholarly term for talk. And so he is giving them a farewell talk, and they don't really know it. Like, they know things are happening, but really, they're sitting around the table, and they're not really clued into what is amping up in Jesus's own life, because he knows exactly what is going to happen. And so, during this time, he is trying to prepare his disciples. Listen to what has all gone on. Jesus, just recently in this week, has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That one kind of ramped him up. People started talking. Uh, when you raise someone from the dead, people take note, okay? You don't need Facebook back then or Instagram or anything else of social media to get the word out. If someone is raised from the dead, people start to talk. The people get excited about it, but then at the same time, the people that don't like Jesus they're getting a little upset about it. And so things are ramping up on both ends. Followers of Christ are getting excited because now they're seeing proof and evidence of what Jesus has been saying, who he is, and, and what is coming. 
well, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, all those, they're amping up and they're getting a little upset because of this guy that is taking authority and power away from them. And so a lot of conflict is coming in. On Sunday, the triumphal entry happened where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is Palm Sunday. This is an important event in history because he fulfills prophecy. Everybody knows the prophecy for the most part. And many people are celebrating it as Jesus comes in because they are celebrating the Messiah who has come. Daniel mentioned last week they were really expecting a guy on a beautiful white horse, yet Jesus came in on a donkey in humility. He was not a military conqueror. He was a savior for their life. And again, still, those that were not following Jesus, they didn't like that. They wanted a military conqueror to come in and save them from their circumstance. And that's not what Jesus was doing. And so then we catch up to Wednesday. People are starting to talk. Well, on Wednesday, we learned that the Sanhedrin, they give out a plot to kill Jesus. And so basically, the word is out. Let's kill him. He is causing trouble. He's you know, people are talking, people are starting to like them, people aren't listening to us near as much. There is this balance of authority that is way out of whack. And so basically, the plot to kill Jesus is out there. And then to top it all off like that, so you would expect the guy that you're following, when you hear a plot to kill Jesus, who is claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus doesn't say, hey, everybody, it's going to be okay. I'm the Messiah. He does the exact opposite. He says, hey, everybody, I'm about to die. And they're like, what? Wait a second. You're the Messiah. You know, you're coming. And so there's this plot to kill you. And what are you going to do? Just lay down? Are you giving up? And so there's this confusion among the followers of Jesus. And that is what he is going to be, be talking about and preparing them for because trouble is coming just like Daniel mentioned last week when we were in verse six, chapter 16. And so now on Wednesday, another thing. So Jesus has 12 close followers we call his disciples, his apostles. And one of them, Thomas, agrees on Wednesday to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so all that is happening on Wednesday. And then we get to Thursday. And Thursday is where we have been the last few weeks talking about this discussion that is happening in the upper room. Now, the events that have happened here is basically after you have this plot to kill Jesus, Jesus publicly announces his death. People start to stir up. They're getting interested. Then all of a sudden, Jesus takes them and, and he gathers them in this upper room and he has this discussion. As they walk in, he washes their feet. Maybe you've heard that story. And when he washes their feet, they're uncomfortable with that. Why? Because he is, he is Jesus. He is the king. He is supposed to be the one that they serve. But yet he is modeling, no, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. And on top of that, I'm about to die. And so there is this despair going on with the disciples. At the same time, the same day, the same meal, this is when you hear about Jesus' disciples. All of a sudden, they start arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And, you know, and so can you imagine the stress on Jesus? 
He's trying to get, let them know, hey, I am about to die a horrible death. You won't even let me wash your feet. You don't understand that I'm announcing my death. Somehow you've forgotten everything I've told you of who I am. And now you're arguing which one in this room is better. What is going on? And then, uh, not only that, then he announces that one of them is going to betray them, Thomas. Wednesday, he made the deal. Now Thursday, he's sitting at the table with Jesus, and he is about to betray Jesus, and Jesus calls him out. Look at verse or chapter 16. Thomas, not only is he called out, but he is excused. I'm sorry, I've been saying Thomas, Judas, Okay, I had a few dirty looks, and that's what, that's what gets me. Uh, my wife looked the most. That, that was the most alarming one was from my wife. It's like, man, you know something's up. And, uh, but uh, so, you know, we have doubting Thomas. He's the doubter, and Judas is the betrayer. And so thank you for that correction. But so Judas is about to betray him. Here, here's what's interesting. Look in, in the scriptures when Judas is excused from the table, Jesus tells those around the table, he says, hey, one of you is about to betray me. And they kind of freak out. They're like, what, what, what? And then he makes the mention that when, when I dip this bread, that is the one that will betray me. And Judas does. He excuses Judas from the table and says, Judas, go do what you have to do. And then in some weird way, which is bizarre to me, the other 11, the others in the room, they didn't even get it. It went over their head. And so I dwelt on that a while. I was like, why, why didn't they get what happened? And it's because they didn't get the entire scope of what is going on. They, just like us, they were missing the importance of what is happening. And so here, Jesus can literally excuse Judas from the table to go and betray him. And they are so caught up in all the other things, that they miss it. They don't even see it. And so Paul, at this time, he gives us a, another thing in 1 Corinthians. It's not recorded in John. I'm sorry for my, my skipping around. But then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And so that is the moment that here we have all these things on. They argue who's the greatest. Jesus washes their feet. He announces that someone's going to betray him. He excuses Judas from the table to go betray him. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper. And you've heard it said like this, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 and 24. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, and that is this Thursday at the table, it says, on that night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it. And then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then if you read on, he takes the cup, and that is the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus, in the midst of all these things going on, all the stress in his life, all the confusion in his followers' life, he institutes the Lord's Supper that we would always remember what he has done. And then at the same time, then he gives that commandment to love. And we talk about that a lot around here. This is the time when Jesus gathered his disciples, and it's recorded in John 13, and he says to them, hey, I'm only going to be here a little while longer Here's the last command I give you. If you forget everything else, remember this. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. All that leads up to this time 
in the upper room. And the upper room discourse is what we've been talking about, the farewell discourse, the farewell talk, the farewell speech is what we've been talking about. And it, it lasts from about chapters 13, some will say into 17, but really for me it's to the end of 16 because in chapter 17 we get to this prayer. And things in this speech, if you go back and you read the chapter kind of quickly, you'll see themes pop up. And they're, they're constant, and it's kind of repetitive. Jesus talks about the, the, that you will have joy in times of sorrow. He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He talks about his own divinity, that he is God. He talks about that he will die, and he will have to die, that the Holy Spirit would come. But if you read closely, and, or, or actually if you read more quickly, you'll notice that as you get to chapter 16, it just gets more and more and more intense. And let me read the final things that Jesus says before what I believe. He gets up from the table and he prays this prayer. And so again, the discussion has been circling and growing in intensity. And then he says this, he says, Jesus asked, he goes, do you finally believe? The time is coming, indeed it's here now when you will be scattered. Each one is going his own way, leaving me alone, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Daniel brought us that big idea last week that following Christ offers hope in the midst of despair. And then he posed this question, this quote from C.S. Lewis, and it says this, because as we go through our own troubles in our life, we have to ask this question. You have to wrestle with this in your own life. Either God is good, but not all that powerful when you're going through troubles, or God is all powerful, but not all that good. That's where the atheists, that's where those would come into play that want to attack God because here we say that God is all-powerful and God is all-good, but then I have to ask the question, why did my pipes bust? And what I want to walk you through today is that I think Jesus answers that question even deeper in his prayer because his reminder is, is that you are not of this world. You are just in this world for a short period of time. And while you're here, God is going to protect us. And that becomes so, so important. Now, I want you to understand, too, as, as Jesus, I believe, steps away from the table, we head into what's recorded in John chapter 17. At this moment, as he is walking to the place where he'll be betray, betrayed, the soldiers are also walking at the exact same time. And I believe Jesus knows it. He has to. John 18, a little bit ahead in Scripture, but again, same timeline. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him, now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons. They arrived at the olive grove. That is right where Jesus is headed. Listen to how Jesus opens up his prayer. The scripture says, after saying all these things, 
all that discourse, all the things we've been talking about, all those things that have happened in the life of Jesus, he looks up into heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. And this is the hour of the cross. When scripture talks about the hour has come, it is talking about the hour of the cross. He goes, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought you glory. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. This hour is going to be the greatest moment in the life of Jesus. But at the exact same time, this hour is going to be the darkest moment in the life of Jesus. He's going to receive the greatest glory. He's going to experience the greatest darkness in everything that he does. I I wrote it like this. I said, the hour of his greatest suffering will be the hour of his greatest glory. And for many of us, it's the exact same. When we are going through those hours where we have the greatest suffering, it is in those times that God will use us when we recognize our own inability that we can give the most glory to God. And so in our weakness, God reveals his absolute strength and power. I want to loop back to one verse real quick. Verse 23, Jesus says something very interesting, and there's a contrast in his prayer as we continue to move on. In verse 23, he says, at that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. Jesus teaches them that they will pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, in a moment, he is gonna say that that you don't have to come to me for me to pray on your behalf. But then, moments later, Jesus is going to pray on their behalf. And so I have to ask the question, what does he mean by pray in Jesus' name? And I think there's some misconceptions of praying in Jesus' name. Uh, Praying in Jesus' name does not mean a special treatment or special powers that you would receive by some magical words. It's quite the opposite. Praying in Jesus' name means that you enter into the presence of the Father with the credentials of the Son. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are granted access to the Father, which is far greater than magical words. Access to the Father is far greater than the ability to use a phrase that we think could, could, could just move the hand of God. It's way different. When I pray in Jesus' name, I enter into the presence of the Father with the credentials of his Son. I have been given access, which is phenomenal. Jesus is saying, I am leaving. And you have to understand, the disciples at that point, when they were in Jesus' company, they were in, though they didn't fully understand it, they were in the presence of God. 
they did not have the Holy Spirit who was promised to come. And so when they stepped out of Jesus' presence, they didn't have what you and I have, which is the Holy Spirit. They didn't have access to the Father in the same way that we have access to the Father. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest, this is after Jesus has died on the cross. Now his followers understand. He goes, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find the grace to help us when we need it most. And so we have this, this access to God that we have never had before. Is Jesus going to say no sometimes? Sure he is. In fact, God, the Father, is going to say no to Jesus the Son in just a few moments. Jesus is going to pray, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What does the Father say? No, it has to be this way. I want to stop here and I want to tell you a prayer that God will never say no to. <laughs> and that is the prayer of one who wants to be a child of God. If you want to be a child of God, God will never say no to you. He has granted you access in Jesus' name. And I do want to say, if you've been coming to church, if you've been coming to resonate, if you've been going to a Bible study but yet you've never settled that in your own heart. Settle it. Jesus is about to pray for your security. He's about to pray for your protection. And it all comes through the access we have with him. And so if that is something you have never taken care of, man, I beg you to talk to someone today. Jesse's in the back there. You can get up and go talk to him right now. I'll be lingering around afterwards. I know Daniel's in here. Claiborne's in here. There's many people in here. We would love to share with you what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus said this. He continued on. He said, then you will ask in my name, and listen to the access you get. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly, because you love me and believe that I came from God. He's saying, I'm not saying that I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. He's saying, you now have access to the Father based on my credentials for what I am about to do for you. And so now let's go look, though, what does he ask for on our behalf? And this can put our prayer life into perspective. Listen to this. He prays for our protection. I have revealed to you the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's praying about his disciples. Let me be clear. Some can interpret this is that salvation is only for the elect. I don't ascribe to that. I hold firm to whosoever will may come to know the Lord. John 3, 16, Revelation 22, 17, for whosoever will may come. He continues to pray. He says, now that they know everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that it came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. 
All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me so that they bring me glory. Verse 11, he says, Now I am departing this world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. If you read closely, it's almost like Jesus is turning in his keys, his earthly keys. He is praying to God. He is saying, my time is done, and I know it. And Father, I turn these disciples, these followers of you, I turn them over to you. And his prayer is this. His prayer is that they would be protected. His prayer is that they would be protected by the truth. Our big idea for today, our protection in a fallen world, is the truth of the gospel. He says, now I am departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. He's no longer going to be with the disciples, and he asks for their protection. And Sometimes we confuse that protection, just like we talked about being in the midst of it. Jesus won't always call us out of it. Many times he leaves us in the midst of it. Some of you, your pipes might have busted so you can be a better witness to your neighbors. I hate to say that, but it's true. Because God is more concerned about the protection of our souls than really the protection of our homes. He does protect our homes, don't get me wrong. But he will use things in our life to draw us to him he will use things in our life to show us his presence. Uh, this past week, my home made more noises than I've ever heard in my life, right? I mean, a lot of gurgling. I don't any longer have young kids in my home, but I remember when I did, and when a home makes strange noises like that, what does a kid want? A kid wants the presence of his father with him. There's a place on this campus that creeps me out to this day. If you walk over by the kids' building in the middle of the night when it's quiet, it sounds like there's footsteps. And, uh, and with my heart beating, once that kind of stopped one time, I had to listen. And I, it, it's, it's a fan in the worship center that is just it's an AC fan, but it sounds like somebody is coming to get me. And let me tell you what a good father does when his child is afraid. A good father will go into his child's room and will stay with the child. You see, when a child is afraid of the dark, when they're afraid of what they're going through, the good father, and I was fortunate enough to have a good father, and I can remember times when my dad would come in the room, he would stay with me. That's what a good father does. But a, a father has two options. When, when, a, when a child is afraid of the dark and what might come, the father has the option to walk in the room, open the door, turn on the light, and leave. Or the father has the option to, go, option to go in the room, keep the light off, sit with the child till the child goes to sleep, and then leave. And if, you'll, if you can relate that difference to our heavenly father, I will always choose, and you will always choose, darkness in the presence of the father, than light in the absence of the Father. Think about that. We want our Father with us, and that's what he offers. He offers his protection. Our protection in the fallen world is the truth of the gospel. And so he gives us an answer to this as well. He says, verse 12, during my time here, he's still praying to the Lord. He's looking up into the skies. He's walking. He's praying to the Lord. During my time here, 
I protected them by the power and the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And then he says this, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. And this is where we can learn. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. There is so much theology in that statement that we could be here for hours. I want to point you to this. Following Christ does not release you from your problems. Following Christ provides wisdom and strength to solve them. Following Christ does not offer a life of escape. It offers a life where problems are faced and conquered. Following Christ does not offer a life of ease. It offers a life of triumphant warfare. Jesus is praying and he is committing his followers into the care of the Father. And his last prayer is a reminder that he is not calling us out of this world and out of our troubles. He is calling us to be a light in the world and to conquer our problems with his power, with access to him, and with all that he has given us. When he says in Ephesians 6, we learn about the, the full armor of God, there's two things I would point to, the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit. The belt of truth the sword, of the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon in your armor. And so I give you one next step challenge, and that would be this. Find and memorize a verse based on your current struggle. Find and memorize a verse based on your current struggle. This is kind of cheesy, but I like it. This book, the Word of God, will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. And that's just the reality. I want to encourage you to find a verse this week. If you're going through a struggle, maybe it's something with your house, the stress, maybe it's something with a neighbor, maybe it's family, maybe it's another issue, would you dig into Scripture and find that verse and then use that? Because God wants to use that verse. He wants to use His Word to show you the protection that he wants to give you. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. And Lord, I just want to claim Philippians 4.8 right now. And Father, by claim it, I don't mean force you into anything. But Father, just to recognize it as truth. And Father, you say to fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Father, you ask us to think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Father, I pray over the men in this room that, Lord, our eyes are not holy. 
Lord, our thoughts are far away. Lord, may that verse, Philippians 4, 8, be, Lord, what we read and we use as a weapon against where the enemy wants to destroy us, destroy our family. Father, I pray for the other struggles in the room that you would show us a verse, Lord, that we could read and use, Lord, as a weapon. And Father, we thank you uh, for your love. We thank you for the sword of the Spirit. We thank you for all you do for us, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your prayer. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't remove us, but Father, you are protecting us in the midst of our issues, Lord, and that our protection in this fallen, fallen world, Lord, is based on the truth of your word. May us be very careful to pay attention to your word. Father, we give you our love in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I hope you guys have a great week, and we will see you next time.